ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Selena Green back with you for The Country Hour today and many thanks to Brooke Nindor for hopping in the chair for me yesterday. Well, coming up shortly, a year on from the River Murray floods and some landholders say there needs to be a hurry up on repairing the levees. And the Federal Water Minister has been on the ground hearing just how vital water is for the locals in and around Menindee. One of the main things, again, which we put to every politician we see is uh, the aspect of the river connectivity from uh, Mungandai through to Wentworth. That, that river's got to constantly flow. Uh, we can't have these cease-to-flow events um, caused by upstream entitlements, over-extraction, etc., more on that soon. Don't forget my talkback number today, 1300 991 Well, that text line is 0467-922-891. But first today, it is coming up to a year since communities along the Murray River were devastated by flooding. Irrigator Joanne Pfeiffer says she lost eight months of income after her property at Long Flat was flooded twice in January and again in September. She's one of a group of farmers in the Lower Murray Irrigation District who've requested support from the state member, Adrian Pederick, to fast-track government funding for levy repairs. Ms Pfeiffer told Eliza Burlage that recovery has been at a frustratingly slow process. I think a lot of it personally comes down to the fact that the funding that we is needed to get these levies to a, a state where they can function well again is certainly lacking. There seems to be a, a hold-up on the decision from Cabinet, State, and then I suppose that goes to federal monies as well. We're just not getting any decision. We've certainly been offered recovery farm support and you may or may not imagine the, the cost that this has been to our farm with our fencing all the pumps we had to pull out, now we've had to reinstate them. All the infrastructure that was destroyed has to be replaced. We were given support for recovery from the government. It ran out a long time ago. Some farmers had to buy in fodder because they couldn't have their animals on their paddocks. So the amount of personal farm recovery money that has been offered has been well and truly spent now. And we're looking for the government to consider both short-term, helping us to probably reinstate fences and the weeds have to be looked after and reinstating pastures, but also the long-term expense that's required to fix the levies so that we can all get back to doing what we do well. That's farming on this amazing dirt and amazing area because... Just like the Riverland, the Murrayland is a region that produces a lot of food for the state and we need the government to understand that their support to us to demonstrate their investment in our region along with our investment is extremely important. And in the interim, waiting for these levies to be fixed, how is that impacting your farming operations and your income and your business? Um, well, with the uncertainty when the, the levy, the first time when it was fixed, it, means that we spent a lot of money replanting and a lot of that pasture was put under water again. 
some areas have taken longer to, for the contractors to be able to access their breaks, to be able to fix them sufficiently that the water can be pumped off the paddock. So it's all been quite a long time uh, for some places. As I said, it was really dependent on where the levees broke and how accessible they were to being dealt with at the time. And it's just turned your whole farming enterprise upside down. Even the guys that are dairy farmers down here, those that were inundated, they couldn't use those paddocks for their pastures. They had to get their cattle on the highland. Some farmers actually had to shift their cows from one farm and go and milk them in somebody else. And for us personally, well, we had to send all our sheep away on adjustment. We had to sell the majority of our beef cattle and any income that we would normally gain through the year from hay production, we just did not have that because we couldn't produce any hay on the irrigated swamp. Is there anything else at this stage that you would really want the government or the public to know about your situation or the situation of other farmers in your district? We certainly want people to remember that from our perspective and probably in the Riverland as well, the flood's not over yet. The repercussions that we're going to face getting our farming enterprises back into gear again will be very long term. And we want the support from the government to make some decisions about the funding that they're making available to even our own department to get these levies up to a standard whereby we know that we are better protected for high flows in the future. And we also want to be involved in the room when the decisions are made about how those levies are recovered. So the communication is important and we just really want the governments of the day and we know we're asking Adrian to help us to make sure that the funding that has been requested to help the recovery continue in this area is actually put on the table and we're not held out to to dry, so to speak, because we need to act now. We're facing um, what could be a hot, dry summer, which means we all have to have the opportunity to irrigate again. And the infrastructure that we need to use that, we have no idea how that survived the flood either. So we want the government to put the money on the table to help recovery across the whole region, not only for their own infrastructure, which it's very, very important for the state, their infrastructure, and I talk about the levies, but also that means that we can then produce the food that we know we can for the state as well. Long flat irrigator Joanne Pfeiffer. Liberal state member for Hammond, Adrian Pederick, has been reading out the letters of concerned irrigators from his electorate in Parliament. He says farmers are fed up with inaction. And it's just just this major frustration that, Farmers are footing the bill for government infrastructure that's failed and they just want that much-needed assistance that should come from the state Labor government uh, to make sure that they can operate their floodplains uh, effectively. Uh, The government keeps telling me when I ask questions in the House um, to uh, uh, the Water Minister and sometimes the Treasurer, uh, Stephen Mulligan, answers these questions. They have a proposal put in front of them uh, for the long-term funding plan to make sure that the 110 kilometres of levees stack up into the future, well, why aren't they releasing that plan and why aren't they uh, releasing the funds? And the real issue here is, apart from the fact we have with these these silting issues, there's uh, levees that are still leaking, uh, still not operating effectively. I'm having a look at one that might belong to today. And the emergency money that needs to go in place right now so that farmers can irrigate over summer needs to be released instead of going into the long-term recovery plan. 
That's the Liberal State Member for Hammond, Adrian Pederick, entering that ending that report from Eliza Berlage. Now, spokesperson for the State Water Department said in a statement that more than three point sorry, $4.3 million has been spent on levy repairs in the district with works done on a priority basis according to risk, accessibility to sites and availability of resources. Support for flood-affected producers, including financial, technical and wellbeing assistance, is available through the PERSA website. That's the same we received from the State Water Department. All moving now to water, and Environment and Water Minister Tanya Plibersek was in Menindi yesterday meeting with a number of water groups and community members. Bakunji woman Barbara Quayle had an extended chat with the Minister by the main weir about the importance of the river to locals. Well I got to meet uh, Minister Plebersek. You know we've always been talking about the importance of having water in the system out here. You know we, we are the voice for the environment. Um, if we don't speak up then it could fall back to where we were back in 2019 uh, with the first fish kills and then there's been more fish kills that's happened. Then we spoke about the importance of the buyback scheme to be able to buy back more water, to be able to keep it water, better water for the environment out here and then um, all the cultural heritage and the high numbers that we have out here out at Menindee and, and around the lakes and along the river. Well, it was a positive conversation that she had and the people that she addressed um, in the room there today. So we had people from uh, the Barkaji Native Title, Minindy Aboriginal Elders Group, the Rangers, local land services, Murray-Darling Basin Authority, the Anna Branch. Yeah, so we had a great diverse group of people speaking today. And the drag, yeah, of course, they, you know, they're always out here because it's very important to have water. You know, it's a humanitarian right to have um, water within the system, you know, for us to live and connect to, to land, to connect with family, to share stories and water for the environment. What do you hope is going to come from this visit today from, from the Minister? Uh, better connectivity within the, in, within the Barker, uh, water on country. I hope that what they say they're going to do is actually do it this time. Um, there's so much. They started the buyback before and to step up and complete that now. Bakanji woman Barbara Quayle speaking with Lily McEwer and the Darling River Action Group also attended the meeting. The President and Vice President Ross Ledra and Darren Clifton spent time with Minister Plibersek and they told Bill Ormond that it was a worthwhile meeting. Yeah, yesterday we spent an hour with her at uh, the Council Chambers and it was just an, an overview of the present river lake system and, you know, the decades of neglect and what's needed to try to get it back to health. And uh, Darren, what were some of the areas in particular you discussed? Uh, one of the main things, again, which we put to every politician we see is um, the aspect of the river connectivity from uh, Mungandai through to Wentworth. That, that river's got to constantly flow. Uh, we can't have these cease-to-flow events um, caused by upstream entitlements, over-extraction, etc. We got that across the uh, management uh, system of the Melindy Lakes that's been the 640-480 rule for forever and a day. Um, it's not to modern-day standards. Menindee Lakes, especially Lake Menindee and Corndilla, are the, the, um, the basin's nursery for native fish, and um, they're the first two lakes that are always drawn down, and it needs to be adjusted. Um, we put our ideas to uh, the Minister about um, an 80% capacity, and once it gets to that level, what goes out of the lakes must come in. But... Um, She's the Minister for Environment and Minister for Water, so the two marrying together for that aspect. We talked about, again, the Northern Basin 
over extraction for the cotton industry, illegal water take, meter tampering over, over time. It has to be really reined in. It's, it's not getting reined in. Uh, sorry, it, it is being reined in on a, on a state level, but it's still prevalent, as in the NRR report uh, for the first three months of this year, was the two of the biggest uh, issues that NRAR picked up in their, their monitoring is the illegal water taken, meter tampering. We also spoke about funds uh, required to enhance and sustain the environmental and economic sustainability of the MLS. I mean, we get a lot of tourists up here now since it's made national headlines um, from back in the, the pump program that was on ABC Four Corners, which was really the, the, the turning point for, for us in getting the message across. So a lot of investment needs to be made on state and uh, federal level to really enhance the area, to look after the tourism and the economic and the environmental side. Ross, uh, I think it was 1,740 days since uh, the federal, a federal water minister, regardless of uh, party, had been in Menindee. Did you think today's meeting in particular was um, productive? Oh, yes, it is. Um, we, we've noticed with the change of government, both federally and state, it's a different ball game altogether. You know, they're willing to come out here, they're willing to talk, take on board it's just I think the, the governments have got so much catch-up work to do but there's certain things as the chief scientist said that need done quickly both state and federally the ministers understand that so uh, and we'll be reminding them constantly that things have got to be done but I mean it's just as I say so different to the previous where you could not talk to them they didn't ever come out so you know we were talking to uh, people within the departments but they weren't decision makers and as I say, this is just so different. It gives you confidence, as you can see by the turn up. And, and whoever ran it, the uh, Murray-Darling Base Authority or whatever, um, they're doing a great job in the local bloke, Richard Unsworth, and um, getting the local groups together. And everyone's, yeah, everyone's quite enthusiastic at this stage. Is it just the change of government or is it just sort of a change in attitude altogether? Well, the government's got the different attitude. I mean, um, water departments were in the hands of uh, lobbyists prior and the National Party had control, and they looked after those lobbyists. That's not happening. So therefore, they're coming out and learning from grassroots and actually seeing for themselves. Does it fill you with a bit of confidence as well? You saw Senator Sarah Hanson-Young, you met with her two or three weeks ago now, um, that more and more politicians, or at least those who potentially could hold the balance of power with this new bill, are coming out to Menindee and getting their feet on the ground? Oh, yeah, of course it is. But... People like Sarah Hanson Young and the Greens in particular, they've got to be a bit flexible. At the moment, they seem to be if it's not their way, they won't vote with the government. And especially on issues like the water, she can't want the 450 and everything else just to go to South Australia. You know, she's got to be, she's got to look at the system as a whole, which we did speak to her about that. And um, this is the place that feeds them with water and fish and whatever else. So you know, they've got to. They've got to look at this. Otherwise, you know, if, if the Menindee Lake Darling River deteriorates continually, then it's going to affect rivers up and down the system. So uh, as the New South Wales fisheries say, that this is the heart of the basin. Darren, probably to finish with, um, seems like, at least from what the Minister said, voluntary buybacks are, are happening and um, they could potentially, she's alluded to it, happen in the, in the Northern Basin and or they won't be exempt from buybacks. Um, what's your thoughts on that? We have no problem with buybacks um, full stop. Uh, volunt- the, the buybacks are voluntary, they're not forced. Um, so every uh, person with a water licence has that decision whether they want to sell or they don't want to sell. We listen to the, the rhetoric all the time of uh, taking water out of communities is going to destroy a community. It's, it's a decision by an individual. Um, you can understand if it was forced buybacks and they went into a certain area, so we're going to take so many gigalitres out of 
um, the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area or the Northern Basin cotton fields, you'd have a good fight on your hands. But when it's voluntary, stick your hand up. People might want to retire. They might want to diversify into other areas, um, dryland farming or, or whatever. But it's their personal decision. Uh, especially in the Northern Basin, um, there's since the coalition has been in government, both federally and state, the over-extraction uh, in that Barwon-Darling area from Mungandai down to Burke um, is enormous. And that's where we've lost out down coming through the Darling River, through the Nindy Lakes and downstream to South Australia. 40% over nearly 30 years reduction in flows. You can go back to 2012 or 2011 when the coalition gained power in New South Wales and in 2012 they changed the, the rules in the Bowen Darling water sharing plan which allowed irrigators upstream to get 300% carryover and access to the small and medium flows that we used to get down and the pump sizes changed dramatically from very small um, pipes to, to quite large pipes. So the over extraction hit then stopped the flows coming down and started the, the cease to flow events. If everyone is serious about fixing the system and they want to survive in agriculture, irrigation and have community survival on the river, then irrigators, groups like the Darling River Action Group, politicians and um, concerned people along those rivers and residents have to pull together. And that's what we've been trying to preach for years, to get everyone working on the same boat. Industry and the environment can survive together. We just need strong politicians to push that through. And we haven't had that in state and federal with the coalitions. They've always um, they've gone against the flow and we're getting people listening to us now, which is great. That's Ross Ledra and Darren Clifton from the Darling River Action Group and they're speaking there with Bill Ormond. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. All right, let's find out what happened at the Mount Compass cattle market now. We're joined by that for that by John Traeger. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon. Numbers increased substantially this week as agents offered 785 lightweight and open auction cattle. The usual trade and process of buyers were active, along with feeders and restockers. The majority of the sale total included 374 steers, 212 heifers and 112 cows. Quality was again extremely mixed, with more two-score cattle represented across the offering, with a better end of the cattle selling to a firm to deer trend. However, secondary cattle found an indifferent market with rates generally easing in line with type and condition. Vila steers sold from 150 to 219 cents and 5 to 10 cents dearer as Vila heifers gained a similar amount as they sold from 120 to 180 cents. Ealing steers sold firm to marginally dearer as they sold from 130 to 227 cents with Ealing heifers selling similarly to make 100 to 215 cents. Manufacturing steers sold from 213 to 227 cents as grown steers and heifers sold 5 to 15 cents dearer with steers selling from 180 to 235 cents and heifers 180 and also to 235 cents. A better selection of cows sold 10 to 15 cents dearer as light cows sold from 50 to 191 and heavy cows 110 to 209 cents. Ealing bulls sold from 131 to 197 cents, with heavy bulls for the trade ranging from 91 to 215 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger, the Southern Livestock Exchange of Mount Compass for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks, John. John Traeger with that report. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour on this Thursday. It's 24 minutes past 12. Let's head off to the Weather Bureau now. Our forecaster today, Mark Analak. Hello, Mark.
Good afternoon, Selena. Uh, it sounds like uh, for some parts of the state, uh, particularly closer to where I am down in the southeast, very, very cold start to the day. It was pretty much a cold start right across the southern half of the state, to be honest. Uh, there's a big high pressure system driving up a lot of very cold Antarctic air, very dry air, and, and overnight we saw some temperatures get get down to below two degrees pretty much right across the agricultural area of the of the state. Um, some notable numbers, minus 3.3 degrees at Keith was the lowest in the state. Um, it wasn't the, the coldest October sort of morning on record. That that sort of went to Lamaru and Woodna, who recorded temperatures below zero. I think Woodna had minus, minus two degrees and Lamaru minus one, uh, and that was their, their coldest October start. Um, well, for the, for the records we have, which extend sort of 20, 25 years. So some very cold locations around the state and uh, these clear skies, or mostly partly cloudy, partly cloudy skies about the south now, but um, we're still seeing some cool temperatures across South Australia and, and we're really struggling to, to get into the high teens and low 20s. Um, but hopefully a bit later on this afternoon we might see some slightly warmer temperatures. With the uh, next 24 hours, we'll see that high-pressure system continue to drive, dr um, drift eastwards. So we could expect another cold morning tomorrow morning. Probably not as cold as, as last night. Um, just winds are coming from a slightly different direction. So while we're expecting a coolish night, I don't think it'll be as cold as last night. The day itself tomorrow uh, should be mostly fine and it should be dry really right across the state um, with winds starting to move east northeasterly and, and start to freshen in the west ahead of an approaching trough. Um, so tomorrow morning I did say it wasn't going to be quite as cold but there is a risk of some, some localised uh, frost patches around the place. As we move into Saturday, that trough drifts across the uh, the west and south of, of the state. It's, it's more like a, a wind change rather than anything else. So while we might see some high-level cloud drifting across the agricultural areas, there might be the odd spot or two, but really nothing to write home about, and, and rainfall totals will be less than a millimetre or two. Um, moving into Sunday, that trough hangs around the northern parts of the state. It hasn't got enough energy to push right up and clear out, so it'll just hover over the northern parts of the state, meaning that the agricultural areas probably remain in the sort of cool to mild range with some cloudy conditions, um, but not much in the way of rainfall, if anything to mention, to be honest. Um, northern parts of the state will remain warmer and, uh, and, and clear under sort of northerly winds. On Monday, we are expecting a slightly stronger cold front to move across uh, the southern parts of the state, and with that, we're likely to have showers about the southern agricultural area, possibly possibly some isolated showers pushing up into the northern agricultural area and the south, southern parts of the pastoral districts. But again, rainfall totals, uh, probably single figures, uh, not expecting more than a sort of double, double digits uh, with that cold front on Monday. And then Tuesday, a new high-pressure system starts to move in from uh, Western Australia and as a result, conditions will, will, will stabilise. Showers will contract to southern coasts and, and the lower southeast coast by Tuesday, Wednesday. Conditions will fine up, winds will ease off and we're back to mostly fine conditions from about midweek onwards. So um, all in all almost typical spring weather really mm. with southerly winds bringing cold conditions warm uh, northerly winds bringing slightly warmer temperatures rainfall wise um as i said we're not expecting a huge amount but uh over the next four days 
I would say up to a couple of millimetres or one to three millimetres across agricultural areas and possibly some isolated spots about uh, sort of the southeast, getting up to two to ten or five to fifteen millimetres over the next four days. So not a huge amount of rainfall expected. Um, generally cool conditions for the next few days until we sort of clear up again middle of next week. Selena. All right. Thanks for that, Mark. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Mark Analak there from the Weather Bureau. Yeah, it's some very cold temperatures this morning. Any frost damage out there, let us know if, uh, if it's had any impact on you. Uh, give me a call, 1300 222 891 or the text line 0467 921. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales for tomorrow, both upper and lower western districts looking at a sunny day. The lower western district does come with a chance of frost in the far east in the early morning. Winds will be south to southeasterlies, around 20 k's an hour, uh, and overnight temperatures getting down to around 8 degrees. Daytime temperatures in the mid to high 20s. It's coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. Coming up in this next 30 minutes, well, the state government is partnering up with Telstra on a project that promises to eliminate mobile black spots in one South Australian region. We're on that very shortly. You'll also meet our homegrown national shearing champion. He's taken a few cracks at it. He's finally taken home the title. And it's rock lobster season here in South Australia. Fishers have been trying to find out, well, what's, what's the best way to catch a cray? The, the fishermen are always interested in improving their catch efficiency. It can equate to less time on the water, less fuel being used and increased profit for the fishery. More on that soon as well. But first, we need to get news and Richard Davies has our headlines. Hi, Richard. Hi, Selena. In the news this hour, CNN is reporting that at least 16 people have been killed and up to 60 others wounded amid mass shootings in the U.S. state of Maine. Police and a county sheriff have confirmed that there's an active shooter who is still at large. An alert for Lewiston has been issued, with the sheriff there releasing a photo of the suspect and asking for the public's help in identifying him. Residents there are also being urged to stay in their homes with their doors locked. CFS crews are mopping up after a grass fire threatened the town of Peterborough early this morning. Residents are still being asked to take care in the area as smoke could reduce visibility on the roads and there is a risk of falling trees and branches. And Kangaroo Island has gained international recognition, named one of the world's top destinations to visit by Lonely Planet. Ranked number two in the 2024 top region's hot list, Kangaroo Island topped renowned tourist destinations such as Tuscany in Italy. There'll be more news at one o'clock. Thanks, Richard, for those headlines. Well, mobile black spots can be incredibly frustrating. I'm sure you've had your share of them, but also potentially quite dangerous because, of course, it's critically important in an emergency to be able to connect a call. And businesses are falling behind if they can't connect to the latest technology. Well, in the state's limestone coast, industries such as forestry, dairy, fishing are all working with the government and Telstra on a unique plan to fill in all of the remaining mobile black spots. That's through a connectivity project 
project to fund 27 new base stations and an extra 2,500 kilometres of new 4G coverage. Well, the Premier, Peter Malinowskis, is in the region today where he's just announced a $5.5 million state government contribution towards this project. Something that has been raised with me almost without fail on a what feels like an hourly basis as I've been talking around the place is the the relative lack of mobile phone coverage throughout elements of the Limestone Coast. And it has been a bugbear for the community for a long time. Not too long ago, we became aware of an opportunity to do something about it. Normally, what happens is state governments don't invest in this activity because um, telecommunications is exclusively the responsibility of the Commonwealth. Um, But Telstra uh, came to us with a proposition that was I think, you know, it was a bit of a test for us. Were we serious about doing something or not? So what we're announcing today is a bit over $5 million funding commitment from the state government that will unlock a $27 million upgrade to mobile phone coverage across the southeast, an extra 2,500 square kilometres of coverage, a 44% increase in the limestone coast of 4G coverage. And it's not just about making phone calls, of course, these days. It's about data and all of the power that that brings. So we're on board. Um, we've been able to coalesce a, a group in conjunction with Telstra of some local council support as well. Uh, and then now we're just waiting on the Commonwealth. So uh, all eyes are on hopefully a decision coming out of Canberra in the next, between now and the end of the year to get this over the line. Mm, I understand councils were being asked to pitch in 5%, state government 20%, federal government 20% as well, and then Telstra would fund the remaining 25%. So the $5.5 million that the state government has committed to, is that the full 20% of co-funding Telstra was calling for? Yes, as my advice. And, uh, you know, to give credit to, to some elements of, of local council as well, I mean, there's a whole suite of councils that have made a made a contribution. Telstra put in $7 million, so now we're just waiting on the federal government. So uh, this is something that I'll be working hard on to my equivalents in Canberra to put as much pressure as we can to make sure they make the right decision by this community. Industry has been calling this for some time. The agricultural sector, uh, the forestry sector, the seafood sector, viticulture, they have technologies that often rely on, on data um, that they can't fully deploy because there just isn't the 4G coverage. As the Premier, Peter Malinowska, speaking earlier with Beck Chave. As you heard, the state's timber industry, which is a major employer and has widespread forestry estate in the region, has been pushing for this. Nathan Payne is the CEO of the South Australian Forest Products Association. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Selena. Good afternoon to your listeners. So the state government today announcing uh, this investment, their investment into this project. How significant is it to have the state government on board and with this level of funding? Oh, look, it's absolutely uh, critical uh, that the state government uh, has come on board. Uh, this, this is a project that has been uh, at least 12 months in the making and it's an innovative way of delivering upgraded connectivity, much-needed connectivity for the region. It's bringing together not just Telstra but the state government, six of the seven local governments in, in the region, uh, the forest industries and hopefully... Uh, we'll get the news soon that uh, the, the federal government will also come on board. It will be a game changer for the region. So this is now the next step or the last needed step to make this a reality, a, a matched funding from the federal government? Uh, that is correct. So it's now sitting with the federal government uh, as part of their consideration of the regional connectivity program. Um, so we're waiting to see and hear the outcome uh, of that. But 
Yeah, what it really does show, though, is that the government does have very much an eye on the Limestone Coast region and the importance of the region, uh, not just to the people who live in the region, but also the state uh, as a whole. And I'm really thankful for the, the efforts of the, the Premier and, and Minister Scriven uh, in coming to the party uh, with, with, this, with this program. I mean, I can't understate how important this program will be for the region. Basically, it will make the region the most connected-up region in the nation. So no matter where you go, you'll be able to pick up a phone and make a phone call. The importance of this, of course, is for workers out in the field where in the past they might not have been able to call for help, they're going to be able to do that. It'll help businesses invest in productivity. It will bring tourists to the region and and will also be region a beacon for new population growth because we know that people don't move where they can't. They can't be connected. From a forestry industry perspective, particularly, and you, you touched there on the safety of your workers out in the forest, but what, what else would this bring? Why is this significant for an industry? Yeah, look, safety is obviously our number one thing. You know, we want every worker that goes to work in the morning to go home safe. Uh, we know that, you know, sometimes out in the fields, um, you know, there's limited communication. So that, that's been our primary focus. Um, but we also know that, though, as we kind of move into this, you know, big data, new digital world, we've got new programs and new productivity uh, measures that we can actually introduce with greater connectivity. So we're, we're hopeful that this will unlock our ability to actually invest in new productive measures, which will uh, deliver more jobs uh, and more domestic processing uh, in the region. Uh, which is, you know, obviously creates a stronger economy and a stronger community. And by the looks of you, you're not, or you're far from the only industry that has an interest in this, uh, as well as consulting with the forestry industry. We've got primary producers, grain producers, fishermen, the CFS as well. There, there are a lot of industries based here in the southeast that look to benefit from this. Oh, look, without a doubt, this is going to touch the lives of of every person in the region in multiple different ways. I mean, if you touched on the CFS there, I mean, how critically important is it that, that we're able to actually identify fires sooner so that we can hit them harder and faster so that don't become uh, uh, bigger problems? Being able to call in fires um, is going to be an absolutely valuable uh, output here. But you're right, it's going to benefit all of the different industries uh, in the region, whether that's dairy, you know, they're looking, the, the dairy industry is looking at you know, bringing in kind of geofencing in effect, so not having the old-style fences but having uh, geofencing, this sort of connectivity is going to unlock that, that potential uh, a lot quicker. Um, I'm just, you know, this will be, I can't say it often enough, this will be a game-changer. and I'm looking forward to the federal government coming to the party uh, and, and getting, the, getting the program rolled out. Nathan Payne, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time. There's Nathan Payne there. He's the CEO of the South Australian Forest Products Association. A few texts coming in about this one. Uh, Steve is in Clare. His text says, How ironic. Kangaroo Island has appalling telecommunications, broadband and mobile. Had a solution post bushfires with Telstra, but the state government said no, says Steve. Bruce has also texted in. He says there's a lot of a lot of mobile black spots on the Nullarbor and from Marla north to Alice Springs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure quite a few of you. Could uh, name quite a few in our state as well. Perhaps uh, something like this could be rolled out elsewhere in the state if it proves a success 
in the southeast. Uh, if you'd like to text in today, that text line is 0467 922 891. All the talkback number is 1300 222 891. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Sparks due to picture a lobster pot that you traditionally see on the back of a boat and footage of uh, the rock lobster industry. You probably have any idea of your head of what it looks like. Well, it turns out the South Australian beehive lobster pot, the one you're probably thinking of, isn't actually the most effective when it comes to catching the product. And that's according to the results of a five-year study which reviewed 14,000 pot lifts by 17 different professional fishers. So what is the best way to catch a cray? Well, according to Dr Lockie McClay, Senior Research Scientist with SARDI, it's the WA Batten Pot. He told Elsie Adamo it was the most comprehensive study into pot effectiveness done in Australia. The, the fishermen are always interested in improving their catch efficiency. So an important point of the study is that Rock lobster fisheries in South Australia are managed under what we call quotas so that a certain amount of catch can be taken each year. And by improving catch efficiency, it can equate to less time on the water, less fuel being used and increased profit for the fishery. So they're always interested in in testing alternative fishing gears. So we work with them to test some pots that they are interested in. And yes, what did you find? We found, over five years, we found that a pot which we termed the Western Australian Batten Pot, it's termed that because it's actually a pot that has been trialled in and used now in Western Australia. And we found that that pot had the greatest catch efficiency. In fact, it was actually about 38% better than what the pot they traditionally use is. So we also found that that pot reduced the amount of fish bycatch taken so that's obviously good from a sustainability perspective and that improved catch efficiency overall it just reduces the amount of fishing effort that goes into the fishery. Right so 38% is pretty significant is that going to be worth it for fishermen to switch over are we going to see more opting for this type of pot is it even a pot you're legally allowed to use at the moment in South Australia? Yeah, so at the moment, the northern, the northern zone rock lobster fishes, so the fishes in the area to the west of the state, so Kangaroo Island and to the west, some of those fishes have chosen to adopt the pot and currently those pots are being fished under what we call an exemption with the aim to regulate the pots formally in the future. Right. So if other fishers wanted to adopt this pot right now, are, they, are those exemptions widely available? Uh, yes, they can, uh, they can apply for an exemption. Uh, we have a management committee process where fishers are able to express their want to do that. Senior research scientist with SARDI, Dr Lockie McLay. So who has been making the switch to the WA Batten Pot? Emily Rowe works as the shore manager for lobster fishers based in Port Lincoln. She and the team had been part of the study since it first started. She told me following its conclusion, the business decided to make the switch permanent. To begin with, it was actually sort of harder to notice the efficiency gain when you were using a small amount of pots, especially during the day-to-day fishing operation. But as we increased the amount of pots used on the vessel, it was obvious that there was an increased efficiency. And just how significant has the swap been for the business? So for us, it means that there's a reduction um, in days that we need to fish, which obviously reduces our operating cost overall. There's also been a reduction in bycatch. 
and we're lucky enough that these pots are able to use the Squeezy Neck um, seal exclusion device, which also simplifies our day-to-day operation. And there is a cost involved with switching over pots. The gains have been good enough that expense is worth it. It's been able to be recouped quite quickly. Look, we haven't recouped the full cost yet, but we hope to over time. Um, Obviously, we've only been using 100% of these pots for a very small amount of time. So we purchased uh, the full amount leading into this coming season and we look forward to seeing overall efficiency gain. So, yeah, the results from this study could have a really big impact on the business long term then. We're looking to have an extra, you know, 15 to 20% increase in efficiency gains in our catch, which overall is obviously going to reduce our expenses at the moment. Obviously, diesel prices are on the up. And if we can reduce any of those days at sea, we're obviously going to see long-term gains. Lobster Shore Manager, Emily Rowe. So is this pot going to become the norm? Executive Officer of the South Australian Northern Zone Rock Lobster Association, Kiri Tomazos, is confident everyone in the area will be making the switch. But it may be a different story for those in the Southern Zone. Approximately 25% of the fishing fleet has changed over to the new pot and we are seeing considerably improvements in catch rate. And just what does an improved catch rate mean logistically? Does it mean less stays out at sea, less staff needed? What? Where does it help? The essential benefits of increased catch rates is that there is less stays at sea, which is a multifactorial benefit. You know, some of the examples are You're using less bait to catch your catch. You're using less fuel. You've got a better and a a more environmentally friendlier uh, footprint. Further to that, ecological benefits of doing that. So there's a lot of improvements in reduction of bycatch. So it's extremely successful from all aspects of fisheries management. And are you expecting more fishers in the northern zone to make the switch in the coming years? Absolutely. As the as the increased costs continue, then all operators are going to look at increasing their own efficiencies and ultimately their profitability. And I would say that majority of fishers in the northern zone will eventually move over to the new pot type. And there is an expense of having to switch over and buy all those new pots. How quickly would you expect fishers to recoup what they've put out? Yes, basically with those levels of improved catch rates, within one season, you will, you will recover the, the input cost, the capital cost of the gear. And but consequently, you know, when, you are, when you're replacing pots, the cost basis of each pot type is very similar. So it is a massive benefit in the long run to have this new gear type. And I was told in the Southern Zone they've been less keen to to give it a try. The trial had a bit of a problem with damage to the pot. That's something you haven't been noticing in the Northern Zone? Northern and Southern Zone habitat is very different. In the Southern Zone, the bottom is is a lot more harsher. So some of this pot types might not be suitable. But having said that, I am very, very convinced that with more trials in the southern zone, the benefits will be uh, realised in that fishery as well. 
Executive Officer of the South Australian Northern Zone Rock Lobster Association, Kyrie Tulmazos, speaking with Elsie Adamo. It is 12 minutes to one. Well, South Australian shearer Nathan Meany is our new national shearing champion. Nathan took out the top spot at the AWI National Sports Shear and Wool Handling event in Jamestown over the weekend. He's also part of the three-man team who also beat New Zealand in the Trans-Tasman Challenge. He's been out shearing busy for work this time, not comp- competition all week, but I finally managed to track him down to say good afternoon, Nathan, and congratulations. Oh, yes, thanks, Selena. No, it was uh, quite a good win in the end, so we had a good weekend. Fantastic. And I understand like, you've had a few cracks at this now and you've come pretty close a few times. How did it feel to finally be standing up there as the, the national champion? Uh, yes, I think I'm pretty sure it was 15 times I've had a crack at it. And, uh, yeah, there's been four four seconds uh, yeah, and a couple of fourths and a fifth. So, yeah, it's sort of been, been all over the place. But it was actually when um, I got called up there, I, yeah, it was sort of, Went a bit blank for a little bit, but it all sort of come to in the end. And, no, it was really good to be standing up there holding the trophy. And I actually worked out how heavy that wooden trophy is. <laughs> <laughs> so a good lesson there to never give up. Keep having your crack because your day might finally come. No, exactly. Yeah, and a couple of times sort of through it, um, to beat Santa Mornis, Jason Wingfield or Daniel McIntyre, you've got to be absolutely on on the day. And, and a couple of times my fitness may not have quite been there, but you can't go back and turn around and you can't change it now and like I said you had just had to be on on song the whole time and Daniel Daniel comes second by four and a half points again at this time and he was definitely the man to beat anyway he, uh, he actually won the open event um, we sure in the Trans-Tasman together and and that uh, was actually good and, yeah good to be up there though. So talk us through you had to go obviously through a number of rounds um, how did how did the day progress? Uh, yeah so on the Friday we had our practice sheet uh, they come from the Sparks family at Mundunny and did a magnificent job on them. I think they had two and a half thousand crutch stuff and, and a top of it to Jamestown. And the committee, like, I called out there on the Sunday to have a quick look at the sheep while they're crutching. And the, on a Sunday morning, they had 10 stands going. And I reckon standing around there would have been another five or six lads that could have been sort of crutching. So, the absolute top effort to those guys for the teeing up what they did. And um, so, yeah, but for the, that was for the practice sheep. And and then on the Saturday we had an open event, which was sort of I just took that as a as a practice run, uh, just to try some gear and that out, and uh, made the made the top six in that. Uh, ended up fourth there, and just sort of one of my cones wasn't quite going right, so I changed a bit around for the for the Sunday for the big event. What's going through your mind through the process, Nathan? Do you are you you're thinking lots, or is it, do you just sort of get into a zone and just? shear away sheep after sheep oh there's a lot going through your mind when you're setting gear and that up and i was going to change it about three times in in the like before we started the heats and then you sort of once you you bolt your comb and cutter on it's just don't look at it and yeah you just got to tell yourself that's exactly how it's going to work and and then forget about it and have an open mind when you get up there and just open up when the time comes now, you mentioned the Trans-Tasman Challenge there and uh, a resounding victory and getting one up over New Zealand on home turf. That must have felt pretty great. No, that was a good win, that one. Yeah, and uh, I sort of didn't have a, a real good cheer in the open event, so I actually took it took a fair bit out on the Kiwi. So I actually had quite a good cheer myself against them, which was which was quite good. And, and like the crowd just got, being a local crowd, got really by me. So, yeah, there was only one way to 
that I had to prove a point to them because they, yeah, they give us a, a touch up in New Zealand last year or early in the year, sorry. So <laughs> we uh, we had to return the favour. So this has got a nice, uh, great rivalry going on between you and the New Zealanders now, but Australia is up. So you've added to our record of um, we're, we're keeping on top of the Kiwis. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's quite good to stay in front, and like all all three Kiwis, like we're all we're all good mates, and and a few of us have actually worked in the sheds together, sort of over in New Zealand, and and since we've done over there, and but it's always yes, yeah, sort of when you're up on the board, it's you're cheering for your country, not your not helping your mates out, so you want to be be out in front. Now you will be heading over to New Zealand uh, for the Golden Shears. What early next year? Are that scheduled for? How many times now will this that you'll be representing Australia? Uh, so this will be the fifth year of representing Australia in the Test, and like last year, Daniel and myself represented the country in Scotland for the for the World Champs, and then I represented Australia back in 2012 at Masterton for the World Champs with Shannon Warner. So between now and then, um, obviously you'll have a fair bit to keep you busy <laughs> through the season. But will you do any special preparation or training aside from you know just keep shearing between now and then? Uh, yeah, we've got a little bit going on, so we've got a contract run ourselves. So we still will go shear right up to Christmas and try to organise workers and sort of couple young kids keep you on your toes and and run, buying and selling a few sheep on and off. But yeah, we've got plenty going on, but yeah. I'd, I generally don't do any uh, as much as like with PT or anything like that as our fitness stuff as I probably should. But um, yeah, well, I just sort of sort of keep going in the sheds and and when it's coming coming close, to sort of step up and go that little bit harder each day. Fantastic. Well, we can't wait to catch up with you again uh, coming early next year when you head over to New Zealand and and congratulations again on coming out as the uh, the national champion this year and well done for sticking at it and, and getting there, Nathan, and representing South Australia as well, uh, standing up there as, as the champion. Great to catch up with you. No, all good. Thank you. That's Nathan Meany. He hails from Kapunda and he took home the national championship title ahead of Daniel McIntyre, who's from New South Wales, and Josh Bone from Victoria in third. But as you heard, he was part of the winning team in the Trans-Tasman Challenge as well, taking it up to uh, to the New Zealanders. Uh, in the blade shearing, John Della from Waruka on the air, uh, sorry, York Peninsula snapped up first place. So congratulations to John for taking home the title in the blade shearing. Uh, he and his New South Wales teammate, Andrew Murray, also scored Australia's first trans-Tasman blades test win since the hand shearing craft was introduced to that series in 2010. So South Australians and the Australians doing us very, very proud at those uh, that competition at Jamestown over the weekend. Well done to everyone competing. Tune your mood with the ABC Listen app. Get swept away in a podcast. Some people come to remembering very funny things from surgery. Really? Choose the news that suits you. Call live radio shows. Carl is calling from the ABC Listen app. Hello, can we make a science week again? And find a playlist that moves you. Anytime, anywhere, every day. Life sounds better with the ABC Listen app. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, the discussion around mobile phone connectivity and black spots has certainly uh, generated a lot of discussion on the text line today. And not surprised, it's always an issue that uh, certainly pricks a lot of people's ears up. Jack is on the text line. He says, our coverage on the Air Peninsula is absolutely hopeless since they changed to 4G. 
someone very unimpressed, uh, but no name on this one, about the uh, the funding for the Limestone Coast project. This one says, sounds like Labor making a serious play for the southeast. Politics in pure form, nothing more, nothing less, says this texter. Uh, and hello to Lee on the text line who says, A few years ago on the Stewart Highway, I went past many mobile towers that were Optus. So my Telstra phone had no single uh, signal. At a server, I was told there you need two phones, one on Telstra, the other on Optus. He says, sadly, privatising essential services should be government run at cost. Give me the PMG and telecom, says Lee. Telecom, I haven't heard of that name for quite a while. Uh, thank you to those who are texting through. Uh, now, if you want to listen back to anything that you hear on the Country Hour, uh, you can hop on, well, you can hop on the ABC Listen app. It's a great way to stream the program as well. So you've got the ABC Listen app on your smartphone or your tablet. Uh, good for you. Look for South Australian Country Hour. If not, well, you can download it right now. It's completely free. You can hop on our website as well. Just pop South Australian Country Hour into your search engine and you can listen back to previous episodes there. Uh, and also you can find lots of great ABC Rural content and stories about what's happening right across regional Australia and through our ag industries by going on to abc.net.au forward slash rural. There's a fantastic story up there right now about bush tucker, about the native Kwandong. And uh, they can sell for up to $180 a kilo. That is pretty impressive. So if you want to read more about the uh, the native Kwandong, you can hop on the ABC Rural website. Uh, if you'd like to read more about the delegation from Champagne, Committee Champagne, they've been in South Australia this week. You can hop on that website and read more about that there as well. It's almost two minutes to the news and Sonia Feldhoff will be with you this afternoon. Hello, Sonia. Hello, Selena. If I mention the word Corellas, what do you think about? Oh, the noise. The noise and also their destructive capacity, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we know that whether you live in the city or the country, it doesn't matter. When you see a whole heap of Corellas together, there's a fair chance they're up to some, some mischief, as gorgeous as they are. But this is causing some concerns for one local sporting club in the southern suburbs of Adelaide, where uh, they've noticed what they've described as an advance party of oh. Corellas <laughs> heading their way uh, onto their new soccer pitch oh, that no. just has spent, they've just spent millions upgrading the soccer pitch. They've had federal government grants. They've only been in there a few weeks and they're letting out the plea. What do we do to stop the Corellas, Corellas are doing it. their thing? Your yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> Uh, and also, if you live in the Limestone Coast area, um, you're in for some really good news because it seems that mobile phone coverage uh, and generally your internet coverage is going to improve thanks to a big boost. You'll find out more about that today. Um, and other areas may be asking, when is it our turn? Mm, very good. I've been getting a few of those this morning or this yeah. afternoon as well. What about us? And it's a fair question as well. Yeah. It really, really is. Uh, and Producers Challenge. So if you've got questions for our Producers Challenge, now's the time to start thinking about your questions. Sonia Feldhoff will be with you with those stories and much, much more for afternoons. Thanks so much for your company today. I'll be with you again from noon tomorrow for the Country Hour. It's just coming on to one o'clock and time for the news. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.